Well, let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 15. We are continuing on. We're about, we're somewhere in the 90s in our sermons through Romans. Um, we'll be just under 100, I think, by the time we're done. Sermons in the book of Romans. So we've been at this for a while in this glorious book, and we are coming to the end of chapter 15, and we, we don't have far to go. We'll be done in just a matter of a couple weeks uh, with this glorious epistle. We are picking up where we left off last week, though, at verse 30, and if you would, stand together. We don't stand when Scripture is read out of some sort of empty ritual. We stand as a tangible reminder to ourselves that it is God's Word that, that has the utmost authority in this church. We stand in reverence of God and His Word. We stand to remind ourselves that we are hearing the very voice of God speaking to us in His Word. And so here now, the Word of God, Romans chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we rejoice in this good gift that you have given to us, we pray, by that same Spirit who inspired these words that you would open up our understanding, give us ears to hear, give us hearts ready to receive your word. I pray, Lord, that, that as your word is proclaimed in our hearing this morning, that our hearts would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that by your spirit our eyes would be lifted to behold him in his majesty. We would be drawn to worship and even drawn to prayer. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word, and I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, George Mueller was a great missionary in England in the 1800s. The thing he is probably best known for is prayer. He pastored a church there and opened up his first orphanage with no money. He had about the equivalent of 50 cents in his pocket when he opened up his first orphanage with 30 children. He didn't have any money, he didn't have any funding, but he had prayer. At times he would pray with the children. There are stories they would sit down at the tables and pray to the Lord that he would provide the meal that they were supposed to be eating in just a few minutes' time, and God did provide Ultimately, he opened five orphanages, cared for over 10,000 orphan boys and girls, all of this sustained by prayer alone. But when Mueller was converted at the age of 20, he had been living up to that point an incredibly sinful and wicked life. And he had five close friends at that time, none of whom were believers. From the moment of his conversion, every day for the rest of his life, Mueller prayed for them. Every single day. Mueller says, I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on land, on sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Three of those friends were converted in the first decade of Mueller's ministry. 
The fourth was saved about 25 years after that. The last friend was not converted until after Mueller's death. Mueller died at the age of 92. And it was upon hearing that Mueller had prayed for him every single day of his life for 72 years that this friend was converted faithfully in sickness and in health for 72 years. He prayed for this man's salvation without ever seeing the fruit of it in his lifetime. And yet he prayed. That's what it means to strive in prayer. Paul, Paul, Paul is going to, in, in this passage today, conclude. He's been speaking of his travel plans to the Romans. Here's what my plan is. Here's what I intend to do. And he's going to conclude that with a request for prayer. He gives them three specific prayer requests. As we alluded to last Sunday, the book of Acts gives us sort of a front row seat to see how it is that God answered these prayers of the Apostle Paul. First, though, as we, as we look at these four verses, we learn some very important things about prayer. Really, five lessons for us on prayer that we see in these verses. First is the urgency of prayer. Look at how Paul begins in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers. This is not a mild request that Paul's making. This is an urgent request for prayer. The word translated in the ESV that I'm reading from here as appeal means to urge, to beg, to exhort. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, this, this word carries the urgency of an SOS. When, when Paul speaks of the armor of God in Ephesians 6, all the other pieces of, of the, the armor of God as Paul describes them, get about half a verse, maybe a whole verse at most, but prayer has three verses devoted to it. Paul takes prayer very seriously. We ought to take prayer very seriously. It is an urgent matter. We are in a spiritual war, and prayer is crucial to our success. If we fight in our own strength, we will not stand. We will not gain victory. Victory comes to us from the hand of God and God alone, not our own strength. And so we gain this strength from God to stand, to persevere, to, to even be victorious through Prayer. Charles Spurgeon says prayer is one of the necessary wheels in the machinery of providence. In other words, prayer, prayer is a necessary means by which God accomplishes his will. So for example, if God predestines that the sun be bright and hot, God also predestines that the sun get its brightness from heat, from fire. It gets its heat, it gets its brightness from fire. And so God has predestined the ends. The sun is going to be bright and hot, and he has predestined the means by which we achieve these ends. It's going to come from fire. God has established brightness and heat so that in large measure they come from fire. And God has established this universe such that in large measure it runs by prayer. That is how God is accomplishing what God is accomplishing in this world. Whatever he has determined to do in human history, he does it through the prayers of his children. So Christian, your prayers matter. Your, prayer, your prayers are accomplishing great things, whether we see them or not. Like Mueller, who prayed for 72 years and never saw the fruit of it. 
His prayers were accomplishing astonishing things. The greatest miracle in the world, the, the dead heart being caused to come alive by God. The salvation of a sinner. His prayers were accomplishing great things, although he didn't always see that. No, no prayer of God's people, no prayer ever offered in faith is in vain. No, no prayer is ever wasted. No prayer is ever worthless. For one thing, it's, a, it's an expression of, it is a privilege of our relationship with God. When we are praying, even if we don't see the answers to our prayer, we know there's only one reason I get to pray. What would ever make me think I could come boldly before the thrice holy God who created all things and who will judge all things, me a sinner, me a rebel in his kingdom? What would make me ever think I could do that? We only come confidently before the throne of grace because we have been reconciled to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been made his sons. We have been made his heirs. We have made, been made his beloved children received by him. Prayer is a privilege of that relationship. So Paul saturates his letters with requests for prayer. He repeatedly stresses his dependence on prayer. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10, he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Paul says, God has delivered us many times. We trust in God to deliver us again. That is why we need you to pray because your prayers are the means by which God is going to deliver us so that we'll be fruitful in ministry. He is not relying on his towering intellect. He's not relying on the fact that he has got the credentials and that he is smarter than everyone else and that he's incredibly persuasive with his words. He is not relying on, I'm God's most valuable asset. No, I need your prayers. And God will answer your prayers. And we will be fruitful because of your prayers. Philippians 1:19, he says, For I know that through your prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is relying on, has an urgent need for the prayers of the saints on his behalf. And this essential, urgent nature of prayer is made clear in the way Paul appeals for prayer here. Look at verse 30 again. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul makes his appeal for prayer. He doesn't say, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if you'd pray for me. No, this is an urgent matter. And he appeals by the authority of Christ. This is no casual thing to the Apostle Paul. In one sense, Paul's not asking for prayer. He's demanding it. On the basis of the authority of Jesus Christ, pray for me. Prayer is not something optional in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian. It is a command. Oh, but how beautiful it is that, that as with all of God's commands, it's not a legalistic burden. It's a command to freedom. It's a command to abundant life. It's a command to joy. It's like the, the doctor commanding the sick person to take their medicine or the starving person to eat their food. The command is good. The command brings life. The command reveals to us how we were created to live. Second, then, as we go on, we see the prayer is natural in the life of the believer. He says, and by the love of the Spirit. This is not a reference to 
God's love for us by his spirit. It's a reference to the fruit that the spirit produces in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit produces in us love. The Holy Spirit leads us to pray. In other words, Paul says to them, I urge you to pray for me, not only because Christ commands you to, but also because the love that the Holy Spirit generates in your heart, love for the gospel, love for your fellow Christian, love for for this world in desperate need of hearing this saving gospel, that love produced in you by the Holy Spirit ought to compel you to pray. This is what the Spirit does in the life of the Christian. Now, before we were converted... Before we were born again, when we were, as Paul describes us in the early chapters of Romans, dead in our sin, enslaved to sin, down in that, in that pit, in that prison cell, locked up, cemented into sin and condemnation, well then we only had concern with one thing, and that was ourselves. Our own selfish pursuits our own selfish desires. We did not care about God's will. We certainly did not care about Christ's church. Even the people we loved, we loved them for selfish reasons. I love to ask a a couple in premarital counseling to tell me why they love the other person. Because invariably, the answer you're going to get is going to reveal that you love yourself and not the other person. Why do you love them? Oh, they make me feel so good. Make me feel so wanted and so loved and so secure and so happy. They make me laugh. And time and time again, we answer that question by revealing it's us that we love the most. And we want other people in our lives, the people that we love, because of what they do for us. It is why people put impossible burdens on their spouses, by the way. It's why people fight when other people don't do their will. But when Christ makes us new, he gives us a new heart. When he renews our mind by the Holy Spirit, suddenly now we delight in serving others. And we not only love the church, but God and his people become the very central purpose of our lives. This is the thing I'm living for. This is what it's all about. And so Paul knows that this fruit of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer, this This devotion to prayer, which is unnatural to fallen man, is now quite natural and expected in the life of the believer. It's what the spirit within us desires. It's what our new heart, it's what our renewed mind desire. A life of prayer is one of the most natural things for a Christian. And if it doesn't feel that way to us, if prayer feels very unnatural to us, now, that's not to say we all sit down for two hours a day and pray, and it's just this mountaintop experience, and it, it's ne- the goosebumps never stop coming. That's not what I'm talking about. But if, if prayer feels foreign to us, if we feel like we don't even know how to do it, we need to ask ourselves, well, what in my heart is causing that? What's making me feel that way? It's not the Spirit of God who dwells in me. Well, what is it that is, is causing me to feel that way? A life of prayer is one of the most natural things there is for a Christian. Third, then, we see something of the mode of prayer. He continues in verse 30, strive together with me in your prayers. This word strive is what we call a hapax legomena. You all know what that means. I don't need to explain that to you. 
No, it means it's a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. This word is used one time right here in the New Testament. It's an intensification of another word that we see in the New Testament, though, agonizomai. That might sound like an English word, agony, agonize. That, that's, it's a word used to describe a contest or a battle. This is an intensification of that word. Taking an intense word and making it even more intense. This root word, agonizomai, is the same word used to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Luke writes in Luke chapter 22, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Paul takes this root word and intensifies it. He says, do this with me in prayer. Strive with me in prayer. Why is prayer described like that? Why describe prayer in that kind of way? If God is all-powerful, if God is accomplishing his sovereign will, if nothing can stand in his way, if he is willing to answer prayer and he desires that we pray, why do we see prayer described as a battle? Why is it an agony? Why is it a striving? Why is it a wrestling? John MacArthur in his commentary says, it's because prayer is always in one way or another a struggle against sin and evil whether in us or around us. We have to wrestle, first of all, with ourselves. We have to fight our unwillingness. We have to fight our distraction. We have been given new hearts. We have been given new minds. We are hidden in Christ. And we have this sinful, selfish desire within us that still seeks to rise up. We have to fight against that. We have to fight against the constant barrage of tens of thousands of different distractions that fight for our attention and fight for our energy. Sometimes we have no energy to prayer because we've given our energy away to everything else. We have to fight against our own selfish desires. But we also wrestle with principalities and powers. That's New Testament language for supernatural beings who war against us. Now, we don't go toe-to-toe with them. That's not what this means. We pour out our urgent pleas to God because we have an enemy who is constantly attacking us. There's a battle against supernatural powers, against principalities. Finally, we wrestle with God himself. In our praying, we wrestle with God as he changes our hearts to agree with his. As he molds us and shapes us into the likeness of Christ. As he puts his finger onto our sins and grants us repentance. Believer, you know what that battle feels like? We want to obey God. We pray with the psalmist, we pray with David in Psalm 51 that God would would search us and know us and and find secret sin in us and, and reveal it to us. We often pray that weekly as we come to the Lord's table. And yet that process feels a lot like a fight, does it not? Isn't that first step when when the Holy Spirit of God puts his finger in our face and tells us we are guilty? Isn't our first step usually this internal lawyer who is in incredibly skilled? At arguing in our defense, well, you know, I've got a good reason for the way I treat people and being bitter because people are ridiculous. Whatever that thing is, it feels like a battle. 
as God in his kindness puts his finger right on our sin and grants us in his mercy the gift of repentance. In in our praying, we wrestle with our anxieties and our doubts about God's goodness, and we bring our questions and our tears before him. So Paul is praying in earnest here because he knows the importance of it, and he calls the Roman Christians to, to strive with him in prayer. He doesn't want to do this alone. I said this on Wednesday night at our corporate prayer meeting. We can all pray on our own, but one thing we can't do on our own is pray together. It's some special, some special that happens when God's people pray together, when we strive together in faith. There's something special in the corporate gathering of God's people. That is why we put a high emphasis on the Lord's Day, gathering together for worship. It's also one of the reasons that we keep the kids in here. Despite the fact that they make some noise, it's because we believe there is something supernatural going on here that cannot be replaced. It cannot be replicated anywhere else. We do not get this by skipping church and listening to really good podcasts. There is something we are missing that we can never get back. And there is something, believer, that the church is missing. The right question for the Christian isn't, what am I missing out on if I don't go to church and I'll measure whether that's good enough? The question is, what is the church missing out on because you are withholding yourself from them? There is something unique that happens when God's people join together. And so Paul says, strive, enter into this agony with me. Enter into this earnestness with me. Wrestle with me in prayer. To that end, we see the prayer is cooperative. Fourth, he goes on in verse 30, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. We don't simply pray as individuals. We have been called to community. We pray in concert. We pray in beautiful harmony with the saints. That is why Paul calls the Romans to strive together with him. They strive together with him by praying for him. Paul Paul knows his life is on the line. Paul has known throughout all his ministry that his life is on the line. Paul desires fruitfulness in ministry. He needs protection He needs deliverance. He needs joy. He needs refreshing. And he knows that he needs the prayers of God's people. Praying with one another for each other's needs is one major way that we bear one another's burdens. It's not just an act of showing sympathy, right? Something happens and somebody posts something on social media and there is a a slew of responses, thoughts and prayers. And the unbelieving world looks at that and goes, isn't it true? Anytime there's a tragedy and someone, people start posting that they're praying about it, some unbeliever is going to say, no, you got to do something real. No more of these platitudes. No more of these throwaway statements, thoughts and prayers. Well, for many, thoughts and prayers is a throwaway statement. For the genuine believer to say they are praying for someone No, that's a legitimate way of serving one another. We serve one another by praying for each other and seeing God move in the situation. We believe prayer accomplishes something. It's not meaningless. 
It's not wasted. It's not worthless. It's not mere sentimentality or sympathy. Now, the words of James are still true. James says in chapter 2, verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Right? So James is also true. If someone is in need and we just go, thoughts and prayers, and it ends right there. Well, what, what use was that? What, worth was, what, what was that worth? Friends, it's not an either or. It's a both and. We pray, and in the cases where it, where it, where it is needed, we help physically. It's not this or that. It's, it's like taking, taking ourselves or our family member to the doctor. It's not a choice between prayer and taking them to the emergency room when they break their arm. We pray on the way to the emergency room. We pray while we're calling 911. It's not an either or. But prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is not a mere platitude. The same James who writes that in chapter 2, writes in chapter 5, pray for one another. Because the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is not a, well, I can't do anything else. I guess I'll just pray. No, prayer accomplishes much. In some ways, prayer is the most profound thing we have to offer. The meager work we do with our hands, it doesn't doesn't rise to that level of, of contending for them, striving for them at the throne of grace. It's both, both and. Fifth, then, we see this key attitude in prayer. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may. Paul's absolutely submitted to the will of God. God's sovereignty is the foundation that Paul's prayers are built upon. There's there's a common teaching I've heard many, many, many times in my life. Comes from the heretical word of faith movement. People like Kenneth Copeland love to spout this one out. They say this, praying thy will be done is a faithless prayer. We make our request to God and then we say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And they would say that is a faithless prayer. It lacks decisiveness. We come to God and we tell God what we want. If you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to need to pray if thy will be done. It's God's will. That, of course, is nonsense, as is all the teaching that comes from that camp. Jesus himself, by the way, prayed that way. That's where we get those words from, and he was not lacking faith. We don't look at any any system that looks at the prayer of Jesus and goes, oh, don't pray like that, Christian, lacking faith. We should, that's just a red flag. We should probably catch that. this, This prayer... This prayer, built on the foundation of the sovereignty of God that makes our requests known to him, that even strives in prayer, prays urgently, prays decisively, and then says to God, this prayer is built on this foundation, not my will, but your will be done. That is a prayer of profound faith, of the utmost faith and reverence. Strong desire undergirded by absolute trust in God's sovereignty. It is a prayer that acknowledges the superiority of God's will over our will. It acknowledges that his plans are better 
than our plans, that his wisdom is higher than our wisdom. It is not a cop-out. It is not lip service. It is certainly not faithful. It is a mark of one who is truly living by faith, who recognizes we are weak, but God is strong. We see in part, but God knows all things. And so Paul's desires, good as they are, and they are good desires, they are God-glorifying desires, God-honoring desires. And Paul knows this. But Paul also knows he belongs to God, body and soul. He also knows that God may have different plans for him than his own plans for him, which are good plans, wise plans, God-honoring plans. And Paul also knows that if God does have different plans for him, then God's plans are the best. God's plans are perfect. But Paul's showing that he has total confidence in God, that he is fully submitted to God and his plans for him, and he will accept whatever God has ordained for him. This, friends, must be our attitude in prayer as well. We can pray. We can seek God's will, we can plan, we can work hard, but God has a specific plan for our lives and the events of our lives, which is often hidden from us, most often hidden from us. It may include things going the way we expect them to, or it might include the dashing of our plans on the rocks. It might include pain and disappointment. It might include the failure of our plans, good as they were, noble as they were. And yet, friends, God's plan for us is perfect. It is flawless. So we sing in the words of that great old hymn, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, I'm not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. That must be the the cry of our hearts as we come to the Lord in prayer, as we make our plans, as we work with our hands. We're not fatalists. We're not fatalists when we make our prayer known to God and they then say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of trusting in God who is wise and trusting in God who is sovereign and trusting in God whose will is perfect and always good. Let's look briefly then just at these answers to prayer. Paul makes three prayer requests here. How does God answer them? Hint, like we said last week, it doesn't go as planned for Paul. Paul's plans are noble. They're good. His desires honor the Lord and things do not go the way he expects them to. And I hope as we consider the life of Paul, it's phrases like, God's ways are higher than our ways. God's timing is not our timing. For those who love God, all things work for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. I hope these phrases, these truths will come alive for us as we consider the life of our dear brother Paul and how God answered his prayers. I hope it encourages us to trust God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of of our plans not panning out. I hope it encourages us 
to pray because God does answer Paul's prayer. And here we see how he did it. Request number one from Paul. Paul says, pray for me that I'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Was Paul delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? The answer is no and yes. In Acts 21, Paul arrives in Jerusalem to deliver his gift. We talked about this last week. A group of Jews from Asia rise up. They begin to slander him. They incite the people against him. The mob grabs him and tries to kill him outside the temple. But God delivered him by the hands of the Romans in Jerusalem. They come along as Paul is being beaten. And they carry him off in order to save his life. How do they save his life? They place him under arrest. So did God answer his prayer for deliverance? Yes, he did, but not without beatings, not without rejection and slander, not without being arrested. The Jews then again try to murder Paul, but the plot is uncovered. The Romans spared him by sending him with an armed guard. He appears before Governor Felix, even preaching the gospel to him. Felix, Felix, we are told in Acts, could have released Paul, but Felix wanted a bribe. And so Paul languishes on in prison. And then Festus took over from Felix. And Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor thought to hand Paul over to them. So Paul had to appeal to Caesar. He had to appeal to, to, as a Roman citizen, I want to go to Rome and I want to appeal my case to Nero, to the, to the emperor. Was Paul delivered? Well, yes and no. God answered his prayers and the, those of, and the prayers of those praying for him, just not the way he expected. The plan was not get arrested, have them decide to murder me, and have to appeal to Nero. Request number two, Paul asked for prayer that the contributions would be well received by the saints in Jerusalem. Paul's been collecting this money from the Gentile saints for the the believers in Jerusalem who are suffering under poverty and persecution. And Paul prays that these contributions would be well received by the saints. And he asked the Romans, strive with me in prayer for this. Were they well received? Well, we don't know for sure, but probably We know that Paul was well received by them. We know that the Jewish Christians rejoiced in the work of God among the Gentiles. There's no mention of the gifts, and some have made a lot of this. Like Paul worked so hard, and this was his aim, and they just ignored, they didn't didn't care. I don't think that's the case. I think it was well received. I think we can assume the gift was, was well received, that they were grateful for it. But immediately after giving it to them, The Jews of the city rise up and try to kill Paul. That is not what he was expecting to happen. Maybe you felt similarly. Right on the heels of some great sacrifice. Paul has done this great thing for the Lord. He has has gathered all these contributions. What joy it must have been to to take it to the saints and, and to present it to them and say, here, your brothers and sisters around the world want to help you. What a joy that must have been. Just when you've made some great sacrifice, just when you've given so much of yourself to God, just when it feels like you're finally on the cusp, I've been faithful, the payoff is coming. It's finally a moment of reprise. 
feels like that's the moment that the enemy attacks, doesn't it? It can be so discouraging. It can be so discouraging to feel like it's relentless and there's no break. There's no rest. There's no time of peace. Yet we can look at our brother Paul and be reminded that God's not absent from this. God's not absent in this moment. God's plans are being worked out perfectly in Paul's life. Request number three, Paul asked for prayer that he'd make it to Rome to see them. Did Paul get to Rome? Yes, he did. But again, as we saw last week, it took him two and a half years to get there, and when he went, he went as a prisoner. He didn't go as a free agent. He had to go through false trials. He had to go through a couple of assassination attempts. He had to go through beatings. He had to go through slander. He had to go through a near-fatal shipwreck as his ship is literally dashed to pieces on the rocks, just like his plans have been dashed to pieces on the rocks. He gets bitten by a snake on top of it. He makes it to Rome, but he makes it there in chains. God had heard his prayers. Jesus had even appeared to him in a vision. In Acts 23, verse 11, Jesus says to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts of me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus promised Paul directly, you are getting to Rome to preach the gospel. He did not tell him how he was going to get there. He didn't tell him what it was going to cost him to get there. And once he was there, why did God choose for things to happen this way? Why didn't he just answer Paul's prayers the way Paul hoped? Why the pain? Why the frustration? Why the suffering? Well, for one thing, we've got the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They are called the prison epistles. They're written during this time, this time of Paul's imprisonment. In Philippians chapter 3, hear what Paul says. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, Philippians. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, he's not being dramatic. For his sake, he has suffered the loss of all things. And Paul says, and I count them rubbish. They're worthless. They're filth to me. In comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. These words, and many like them, were the prayers of Paul's heart. Born in him through the difficulties he suffered. Born, with, born within him because of his many trials. This depth that's there. 
Listen to what Paul says in chapter 1 of Philippians as he reflects on what God's doing as he sits in jail. What is God doing in his present circumstances? He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and through the rest of my, uh, and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul does not see his imprisonment as a waste. Here, here is this great apostle, this great evangelist who's now been literally physically bound and kept from going to the places he wants. He wants to take it to the frontiers. We saw that last week. He wants to go to Spain. He can't do that anymore, and he says, it's not a waste. None of this has been wasted. Turns out that God's plans were better. He sees this as something that's advancing the gospel. We would think what Paul would be doing would be sitting there going, God, I wanted to advance the gospel. Why won't you set me free to do that? No, Paul says, what happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Paul would have been chained to an imperial guard at all times. They would have cycled through a roster of these guards to keep this 24-7 watch over Paul. And Paul just sees each one of these guards as his captive. I'm in chain, but they're in my jail. They got to listen to every word I say. Got to preach the gospel to every single one of them. He doesn't take that lightly. He sees the gospel advancing. Listen to what happened on the ship Before it was wrecked in Acts 27, we read this. This very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Paul's talking these, these, these sailors out of jumping ship in the midst of the storm. And he says, God's given all of you to me. Take heart, we will be spared, we will be safe. And Paul preached to these sailors and they experienced that his words were 100% true. It went just as he said it was. Ultimately then, because of his imprisonment, Paul was able to preach to Emperor Nero himself, the most powerful man on earth. So Paul arrived in Rome and although he was under house arrest, He was able to preach to all who would come to him unhindered. Ultimately, he was released about two years later, was able to travel again, taking the gospel to the world until his second arrest and martyrdom. So how does does God answer prayer? The answer is in ways we can't imagine. God's wisdom is perfect. God's will is perfect. Is perfect. His answers to our prayers are always perfect. He calls us simply to be faithful. He calls us simply to persist in prayer. And as we pray, we remind ourselves of God's sovereign goodness. He is able to do what He wants, when He wants, the way He wants. He never has to ask anyone's permission, and His plans for us are always good. Always good. So Paul says then in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen.
That's the result. What is the result of knowing that we pray to a God who is sovereign, does whatever he wants to do, is not lacking in power? What is the result of praying to a God who we know is sovereign and a God we know who is good? Always good. Only good who is only ever working for the good of those who belong to him. What is the result? The result is peace. Profound peace. Deep peace. Peace that surpasses understanding. As Spurgeon said, it's the sovereignty of God that's a soft pillow we lay our head down on at night. Peace. Does our prayer change God's mind? No. God's unchangeable. John Stott says the purpose of prayer is emphatically not to bend God's will to ours, but rather to align our will to his. Uh, Isaiah describes prayer as taking hold of God. Isaiah 64, verse 7, no one calls on your name or, or strives to lay hold of you. This is a privilege of our relationship with God. No one, no one comes even to the earthly king and just runs up to him and takes hold of him except a select group of people, his closest family. His children can. They can run up to him and grab onto their daddy. A, a child who trusts in his father feels at peace when he takes hold of his father's hand. He knows he is totally secure. I can be, remember a ch- as a child, growing up, traveling, being in some sketchy places, but like, dad's here. What could possibly happen to us? What could possibly go wrong? Dad's here. Well, a lot could go wrong. My dad's 5'7". We got mugged in San Francisco once. I watched it go down. I know that things can happen, but in my kid mind, what could go wrong? What could go wrong if dad's here? The child who trusts his father knows he is totally secure. How much more so? How much more so with the Almighty God? How much more so with the sovereign God who is our Father? What a glorious thing it is to come to him in prayer. What a glorious thing it is to trust in him. What a glorious thing it is to see his faithfulness over the years in our lives. No, we don't see all the answers. No, we might strive in prayer for things for our whole life and and only feel like we have seen our plans fall apart. But we have the testimony of God's faithfulness in his word. We have the ability to come to him. We have his spirit's witness in us that we are his children. What more could we hope for? What mind could conceive this glory? And this goodness of our faithful God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do rejoice in you. Lord, how how glorious it is as we look at the life of our brother Paul to see one who struggled so deeply, one who prayed so passionately, and yet his prayers weren't answered the way he anticipated. And yet provides for us a model of hope and trust in you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that in your word, you haven't just given us good examples of people who did everything perfectly and had everything go their way. We are able to look 
time and time again at your faithfulness where your people have been unfaithful. We see time and time again your faithfulness in the midst of situations that, that look like we've been abandoned. And Lord, because of this, we can trust you more. I pray, God, by your Spirit, you would cause us, give us as we sang together this morning, the grace to trust you more. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you in this room. Lord, those who have not the privilege to come boldly before your throne, that you would grant to them repentance and life and salvation by your Spirit. Cause them to turn from sin, to run to Christ be members of your family. And Lord, for those of us who trust in you, who have walked with you, some for many, many years, I pray you would cause our faith to grow. I pray you would cause our hope in you to grow, our trust in your sovereign goodness. And Lord, make us faithful to strive together in prayer. Pray, God, that you would make this a church of people who, who pray bold prayers and take bold action. Pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be faithful for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.